If you live in San Francisco, you've probably heard the statistic. At 120,000, San Francisco has more dogs than children. Peter Thiel once quipped that the city can be structurally hostile to families. And one could argue that the country is now headed in that same direction. So what can be done? Well, on today's podcast, we ask Ivana Greco. Ivana is a Harvard-educated attorney. She's also a stay-at-home mom. And she's written an incredible essay on how the United States can make the option of having a stay-at-home parent a real possibility for families. Now, before you say, that's not very 2023, reconsider. As Ivana describes, having a parent stay at home with children is popular with a wide array of Americans from different socioeconomic groups, especially lower income Americans. In fact, statistically, only one group actually prefers to have both parents work outside the home. It is the wealthiest Americans. So maybe it's time to rethink, dare we say destigmatize, stay-at-home parents, and reflect that, both in our businesses and in our public policy. Before we start the interview, please remember to leave us a review and subscribe to this podcast. It goes a long way in our ability to bring you future guests. Now, the Briona Society is pleased to give you Ivana Greco. Welcome to the Briona Society podcast. I'm joined today by Ivana Greco. Ivana, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Jump right into it. I want to talk with you about this essay you wrote for National Affairs, which is put out by the American Enterprise Institute, called Reframing Family Policy. It's fantastic. Folks out there who are listening, if you haven't read it yet, you have to. But before we jump into it, can you tell us, for folks who haven't read your article and aren't familiar with your work, who you are, where you're from, and a little about yourself? Sure, happy to. So I graduated from Harvard Law School in 2011, and I practiced law for about a decade, specializing in qualified retirement plan advising and healthcare litigation. So pretty specialized. I'm also a mother, and during the COVID pandemic, I left private practice to become a stay-at-home mom. And so drawing from those two experiences, I've written an essay on reframing family policy to better protect families with a stay-at-home parent. When did you start thinking about this area? So you graduate from Harvard Law School, obviously a phenomenal school. You're working in a really high-paced environment in the legal profession. When did your mind start gravitating towards this issue of family policy, which seems, for those of us who have practiced law, sometimes a million miles away from firm life, which oftentimes can be cold and uncaring? Uh, well, I, uh, like many people, it didn't really strike home for me until I started having my own kids, which I did pretty shortly after I started private practice. I think there was maybe a couple of years in there where I practiced law without having children, but most of my legal career, I had at least one child at home. During that time period, well, a couple of things became clear to me. One, which becomes clear immediately to almost everybody in the legal field who has children, is that those two things don't go together very well sometimes. But the other was thinking about how we have structured government and employee benefits in this country to disfavor families that have a stay-at-home parent, which is probably more of a quirk of, of my area of interest and expertise. So I want to ask you about that because there's an irony there in that politically, both major political parties always say that they're pro-family. They may differ in how they present pro-family, but there is no viable politician in America that is against 
the family or wants to be critical of the idea of a family unit. It's a third rail. And for years, it's just been a difference of opinion on how to do it. So, you know, Democrats have championed universal child care so both parents could work. During the pandemic, the Republican Party was very aggressive in the push to reopen schools so that both parents could work. But you touch on an interesting issue, which is we're taking for granted that society wants both parents to work. Is that assumption correct? Is it consistent with the data we're seeing? It's not consistent with the data. The best data we have indicates that for most married parents, they would like a parent at home taking care of kids, especially little kids. And I think the way that we've gotten to the policy we have now is there is one demographic group in the United States that wants both parents working, and it is wealthy, educated parents. And that makes sense. They have invested a lot of time in their degrees, and so they both want to work. But they're shaping policy for everybody else. And so parents in middle and lower economic strata do not want this as an outcome, but are sort of being channeled into it. You make this point brilliantly in the essay, and I'll, I'll say it again. I promise it won't be for the last time. Everyone should read this essay. But you cited some studies that were just remarkable. So you cited a Gallup poll that 50% of women with children under 18 would rather be a homemaker than work outside the home. And when you account for ethnicity, some of this data is just utterly striking. So there was one study that uh, queried Hispanic families about their views on staying at home. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so different ethnicities, people from different ethnic groups have different views on this. But for example, as you brought up, Latinos have very strong preferences that their children not be sent to institutional child care. They want kids, particularly little kids, to be cared for by either a parent in the home or possibly extended family. But they're, by and large, very skeptical of sending children off to daycare centers. So I think something like only percent of only 14% of the Hispanic parents surveyed in this particular poll, which was published by the Institute for Family Studies, wanted their children in institutional child care. So a very tiny percent. What you also make reference to in this essay, which I think is the logical next question, is that is there necessarily a body of research that's looked at broad scale government directed child care and the outcomes associated with it? Like, like, are we going on feel or has this been studied in a way that we can draw reasonable conclusions? Well, I should preface this by saying I'm not opposed to daycare. I use daycare with, with my own children. So this is not is not sitting in judgment, anybody who sent their child to daycare. But the studies we have suggest that while daycare can be good in some circumstances, so for example, for poor families or very high quality daycare, the experiments, some of the experiments that have been done on providing daycare at scale have not been successful. So one example is in Quebec. In the 1990s, the government decided it had a large priority of encouraging women to join the workforce. And in order to do this, it decided to provide very cheap daycare universally. I think it started off at $5 a day. And the studies that were done on the kids who went through that daycare were pretty striking and showed that by and large, 
they had worse outcomes um, than children who did not enroll in this universal daycare program. So the results of this particular universal daycare study were that it did achieve its goal in one sense. It convinced women to join the workforce, but for the children, it was not very good. And what kind of outcomes were we seeing it correlate with? So when we say it wasn't very good for the children, what kind of variables are we thinking about? So it seemed to correlate with worse economic performance over the long term, worse academic outcomes over the long term. For reasons I think we don't really understand, it seemed to be particularly bad for boys and resulted in a greater chance of engaging in criminal behavior as young adults. So essentially across a wide range of factors, it seemed to have a negative impact. And I should say Uh, The second study that was done, the researchers were very surprised. They were not looking for this outcome. They thought it would be positive, uh, but that's just not what they found. Is there a working hypothesis on why? I don't think we know why this is happening, and I also don't think we know why it seems to be particularly bad for boys. You know, I think the best guess we have is that ensuring high-quality daycare is offered across the board is really tricky. And so when Quebec decided to scale up its daycare uh, so drastically in a short period of time, a lot of the daycare that was offered ended up being poor quality and had a sensitive period in a child's life, which can have long-term impacts. But I think those are those are guesses. I don't think we know for sure. You've hit on an important topic, which is the quality of the daycare and the economics of it are probably a a key factor. And it seems like that's the issue that was lurking behind the push for universal daycare to begin with, that we need to free up parents to work because obviously if both parents are working, that's two incomes, not one. And that presumably will help lift people, if not out of poverty, into a more comfortable circumstance. I think if that's the argument, it's a fair one. It's uh, a noble one. It just may not have enough choice to work for everyone. So this to me goes to the proposals in your article, which people should think about. If the push for daycare is centered on on economics and on helping people and families in particular be more able to provide for themselves, is there an alternative to just enabling both parents to work? What could we do if we want to help families economically, but not leave them with the only option of daycare? Yeah, so I have put forward a number of policy proposals in the article, and they're centered essentially on a number of interviews I did with mostly women. I did interview a couple of men, but mostly women who either are stay-at-home moms or want to be stay-at-home moms. These proposals are really triggered to some of the concerns they had. The big ones were saving for retirement, making sure they could retire comfortably. The real big one was healthcare. Everybody I talked to had something to say about healthcare. And then also some concerns about what happens if they become disabled or their husband becomes disabled. That was also an area of concern. So I put through four proposals in all three areas. Let me ask you about all of them, but to start with healthcare. Many people who haven't been in this situation may say, well, You know, we've had Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, for over a decade. I'm vaguely aware that if you don't have health insurance, you can get it on an exchange. And if you can't afford it, there are subsidies. So what's the issue here? Why isn't Obamacare good enough? So the big problem with Obamacare is a technical issue called the family glitch. 
I should preface this by saying that the family glitch was a huge problem when I published the paper the Biden administration has proposed and finalized a regulatory rule to try to address it. But the problem for a while was that in determining whether you could purchase healthcare on the exchange with a subsidy, the exchange looked at an individual's cost of purchasing healthcare from their employer, but not the family cost. So if you were spending more than 10% of your income on purchasing individual health insurance, you got a subsidy, you got some money from the government to help you. But if your family cost was greater, you didn't get a subsidy. The Biden administration has now tried to fix that. There are a number of, in my mind, very good legal criticisms of that regulatory change. The administration had previously said you could you could not fix it this way. You needed Congress to act. And future administrations may reverse it. But there has been a new rule put forward for the 2023 exchange that try to address this. Can you walk us through it? So how would it close the loophole? So essentially, it makes the test for the subsidy cliff look at the family cost of purchasing health insurance rather than just the individual cost. So it really does directly try to close the loophole. There is a practical difficulty with it. It has to do with how plan years are structured. So this may be getting very technical for your audience, but many plan years do not run from January 2023, but the rule requires you to purchase the subsidy in January. So families may still be slipping through the cracks. You may be familiar with this, making mid-year elections on your health insurance plan tricky, the rule still leaves a gap there. Uh, so it's not perfect, but it does it does try to fix it. The other issue that you mentioned a moment ago, and I think is salient, is retirement savings. And this, this touches on a bunch of things, including the economic leverage when only one parent is working. How can we change our retirement savings laws to better accommodate parents with one staying at home with children? So this, again, so we, we've we talked about government regulations relating to healthcare. Here again, there's government regulations relating to retirement that could change. So this is purely in the government area, not in the private employer area. But in terms of what the federal government can do, I propose the creation of a family retirement account. As I'm sure you know, if you are employed, usually you have access to a 401k or a 403b, depending on your employer. And that's held in an individual's name only. And what I proposed is that we create a family account that would be a way for the parents together to save for retirement. That's interesting. So instead of, let's say, the account being in dad's name, Joe Smith, it would be Smith family or Smith Jackson family or something like that. Yes, exactly. While I was an attorney, I saw a number of problems come from the fact that retirement accounts are held in individuals' names, particularly when, say, dad goes to work and mom stays home. When you do that, even though when you really think about it, both parents are making it possible for dad to save that nest egg in his retirement account. It's held only in his name. He gets to make all the decisions about where it's invested. Fidelity or whomever is is uh, administering the account is not going to call it mom and make sure she's okay with those investment options. And mom may just not be super aware of what is going on with that account. 
if dad dies, that can mean that mom has sort of this double whammy. She just lost her husband, and she's also dealing with all these financial accounts that she may or may not be particularly familiar with, uh, especially retirement accounts that she just may have never had reason to really be involved with. And if they get divorced, there's a number of lawsuits that come out of that. So we do have a legal process that is supposed to equitably divide this, but it's very imperfect. It seems to be worse when dad and mom divorce and then dad gets remarried. There's tons of lawsuits that happen there. And so if the retirement money was held jointly, just like you have joint title to your house or your checking account, perhaps, that would ensure that in our hypothetical case, mom is protected. Dad can't just make unilateral decisions without her without her knowing about it. And then if something happens to dad, um, it would be sort of like a family house uh, where it's more obvious how to split it up. You touched on another fascinating point a moment ago. You mentioned how this doesn't necessarily impact private businesses that offer health insurance. Is there a role for private industry for business in, I'll say, destigmatizing having a stay-at-home parent? Like you, I've worked in a series of law firms. I've worked a series of jobs in my life. I- I've never heard a business trumpet their benefits for stay-at-home parents. It's just not done. Should we try to change that? And what are your thoughts on it? Absolutely. And I think one of the huge issues we have in policy proposals in this area in the United States is there's huge focus on what government can do. But unlike, say, the European Union, in the United States, lots of policy decisions about healthcare and retirement are not made by the government. They're made by businesses. Of course, they're somewhat regulated by government, but businesses have huge latitude in deciding what benefits to offer. So I think there's an enormous role for businesses to play here. I think they should for reasons we can talk about. I think they can. I think they would be really able to strongly impact this area. They just haven't done it. What would that pitch look like in your mind? So if you had a a reasonably sized business How do you communicate to people that you want to offer them this choice? Because there seems to be a stigma around it, either mom or dad staying home. And to my mind, it shouldn't be that way, you know, unless work is what defines your life. And I think we are coming increasingly post-pandemic to the realization that your job is not you. We should be able to have that pitch out there and we should be able to offer it to people and it should be well-received as a choice. What are your thoughts? I agree. For the past 20 years, there's been a big emphasis in businesses on making it possible for both parents to work. And to be clear, I think that's great. You know, I think all the efforts at keeping women in the workforce, on providing a number of different benefit programs to make it easier for young mothers to work in terms of increasing paid maternity and paternity leave, I think those are awesome. I just think they're very incomplete because they miss all these people who we were discussing who really want to have mom or dad stay home with the kids. And I find that somewhat inexplicable that we're sort of disregarding the preferences of many employees in for reasons that are just not not clear to me. I, I'm not sure why we have reached this outcome. I'm also not sure it's deliberate, but it certainly has not been an area of emphasis for businesses. One great point that I've heard you make elsewhere is that more than than just a preference, a lot of folks who have who are middle and lower socioeconomic status 
have jobs that don't lend themselves to both parents working or frankly make it impossible. Can you t- give us an example of that and, and maybe walk through how for some families, certain jobs just mean that one parent must stay home or effectively must stay home? Yeah. So a bunch of jobs have travel requirements such that it just would be really difficult to have both parents working. So one example is long haul trucking. The men and women who are in that field are just gone for long periods of time. And it's really hard for those families to make that work without having a stay-at-home parent. Another example would be traveling linemen. The men and women who work on the utilities industry, not all of them travel, but some of them certainly do and go to where there are national disasters or where new facilities are being built. So for these people, it's just very difficult to make things work without having mom or dad at home um, if they've got little kids. So I'm going to pivot sharply and ask you a very San Francisco-centric question. By the way, am I remembering correctly, you are in Connecticut. Oh, yes, I am in Connecticut. <laughs> I've, been, I've been to California twice, so we're, we're, we're veering outside of my expertise. But <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll set the background for you as best I can, and folks have to know that it's seen through my lens. So San Francisco is a city of just under 900,000 people. During the pandemic, we lost a bunch, but you know, 800 to 900,000 people. And it's been famously reported that we have more households with dogs than children in the city itself. It is a very difficult city for families. It didn't used to be that way to the same extent, but it increasingly has become that way. And one of the problems is you lose a constituency for family assistance. I'll say that I have several friends who are in tech. They they don't have young children and they say, why should we subsidize? Why should we pay for somebody else's kids? Why should we establish programs that take money from us to enrich somebody else in their family? And maybe in a really short-term way, there's some sense to that. What is the response? You know, why should someone without kids who maybe doesn't even want to have kids care about if kids are happy, healthy, cared for, and plentiful in America? Well, I would say the big thing to think about is the fact that our government benefits, on which we're all going to re- rely on when we retire, are structured such that you need a next generation in order to be able to receive them. So if your friends want to receive social security payments one day, if they want to be able to rely on Medicare one day, they need people to have kids to join the workforce. So that's maybe like a purely economically self-interested one. I think the other big reason is that a society that does not have healthy, happy children is one that is in real trouble. I think we see this a little bit today, just in the way we've chosen to structure our family lives, that a lot of neighborhoods where both parents are working and the kids are away all day just are kind of empty during the day. You know, there may be some elderly people around, but when you contrast those neighborhoods to neighborhoods even 50 years ago where there were kids running around on the streets and people over at each other's houses having barbecues and so on and so forth. They're very different. And a country with no children is a sad place to live. You make a good point. It it reminds me of the book, I'm dating myself a bit here because it was over a decade ago, but Jonathan Last wrote a book called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. It's, It's obviously play on the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And the general thesis of the book was exactly as you say, there has never been a society that became more prosperous in terms of economics, social cohesion, name your variable, with a declining birth rate, because you end up having this economic burden of a smaller working generation 
having to care for an ever larger, retired, increasingly in frail health generation. And there is really no way in the medium or long term to avoid that problem. The chicken is going to come home to roost, and we don't want to be in that situation. Yeah. I mean, I think even you may see this just from talking to friends. The family size is already a lot smaller. And the friends who I've spoken with who are taking care of declining parents who are only children or who have only one sibling who might not be involved, that's a very painful experience and one that's much different than a family of four or five who's trying to help mom or dad in their old age. And so that's like a tiny snapshot of what society at large, I think, would look like if there's no kids and an aging population. To me, this question has a flip side. It obviously is a problem, but in every problem, it said there's an opportunity. The Republican Party, I think it's fair to say, has to reimagine what its policy is vis-a-vis family. For decades, the policy was really centered around Roe versus Wade, and I understand that's an incredibly uh, difficult and divisive topic, but that really was the Republican talking point on the word family for years. Post-Dobbs, the issue has largely been decided, even if it is equally or more so divisive. Is this a time when party like the Republicans could carve a new, really bold answer to helping families? And if so, would there be a role for something like what Mitt Romney has championed in child credits and child payments and and things of that nature? Yeah, so I I really like the Romney plan. I think it's thoughtful and well-designed. I always get a bit anxious when people start talking about bold government plans because I think we've had a number of bold government plans that are very well-intentioned and yet not well-structured that end up with really negative side effects that we find hard to predict in the future. But I do think that there is absolutely an area post-Dobbs here for the Republican Party to put its money and its policy where its mouth is and say, we are supportive of people having babies, essentially, across the board, and we need to start making changes to make it easier for families with kids. But I also think that there's a big role for businesses to play and say, we're going to pony up for that inexpensive family health insurance for the people who are working here. We're going to pony up to make good retirement contributions. We're going to think about how we offer disabilities so that the people who work for us, excuse me, disability insurance, so that the people who work for us are able to have their families structured the way they want. And that includes if they want to have mom or dad at home. This idea of the way they want, structuring it around choice is an interesting one. And it harkens back to what we talked about a minute ago about how you would pitch this. Do you think there is a stigma to overcome here? It seems, I continue to wonder how a business would talk about this in 2022. How do we pitch the idea of giving families the choice to have mom or dad as a stay-at-home parent? Well, I'll tell you what I think the way not to do it is. I think the way not to do it is to say, we want to return society to what it was in the 50s and 60s. I think that is a non-starter. That is not the way I would go about it. And that's not what I want either. I think the way to do it is to say, we have made lots of very important advancements in getting women into the workforce, in educating women, and in supporting people and having families. But for a lot of people, the two working parent model just doesn't work. And there end up not being enough hours in the day, essentially. And families want the ability to have mom or dad at home. That's not regressive. That is, that is forward thinking. We want our workers to be happy. 
We want them to be able to work in some cases. We're going to offer the support that these families need. I'm curious about your thoughts on the role of work generally in society. So again, this is a bit San Francisco-centric, but it feels like over the last 10 years with the rise of tech culture, work really did become an identity. And one of the fascinating memes that caught on during the pandemic, especially among Gen Zs, was the response to the question, what's your dream job? And their response was, I don't dream of labor. It's a little shrill, but the idea is it's questioning the assumption that your dream should be something bigger than work and who you are should be something bigger than work, that there's something more meaningful out there. And if government wants to offer a better life, the priorities may well be switched. What are your thoughts on that? Is this part of a a larger reckoning with the role of work in our lives? Well, I think COVID did make clear to us some places where there are real cracks in the social structure. And one of those is sort of all-encompassing work just doesn't go hand-in-hand easily with small children because small children also have many demands that they will not be put off in wanting. And if your business is wanting everything from you and your children also want many things from you, those are just inevitably going to conflict. And I think we were trying to ignore that for a while, but I think it can't be ignored. And uh, COVID really brought that home for a number of people. And so to me, it's interesting. There's been sort of on the left, the reaction to that is, well, the solution is that we all need universal childcare so the government can help. But I think there's there's another thought process that could be kicked off by that, which is that parenting is a vocation. It's something you're called to that isn't economically remunerative, but is one of the central shaping factors in someone's life. At least for me personally, COVID helped make that clear. 